Amen. Amen. You. Thank you, brother. Well, it is so special to be with you. I, um, I love the church. I love the church uh, because of what we share in common in Jesus, and I love the church because of what makes us different and distinct. And I love coming into a place where there's songs I know and there's songs I don't know, and there's things that feel familiar and unfamiliar, and I kind of love that about the church. I love that God is on the move, building his church in all of its diversity across Canada, so it's a real honor to be with you today. Hey, what I want to primarily do is just unpack a passage of Scripture in Mark chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. And so if you have a Bible, you can flip there. And while you're sort of getting yourself there to Mark chapter 2, uh, I do want to try to just set the stage a little bit. And I want to just, you know, kind of complete the picture of, of introducing myself because I'm a pastor. I work with Alpha. I love helping churches do things like Alpha around the world. Uh, but my primary responsibility is I'm a husband and a father. And whenever you go into a place like this and you have to win the trust of people fast, because that's the job of a guest speaker. I just showed them a picture of my family, and they go, oh, look at that wife. He must be doing something right. So that's my wife, Rachel, there. My son, Hudson, who's five. My daughter, Mary, who's three, and Millie in the middle, who's one. And we are just having so much fun and getting so little sleep right now. It's the best. And so we're ripping home today to go back to be with them. And as a father and or a grandfather or an uncle or an aunt, you teach your kids different things, don't you? Do you remember some of the things that you first taught your kids? You know, you had to chew with your mouth closed. Uh, recently, I had to teach Hudson that you have to wear clothes in public. We were at, um, we were at like, a, a, like a water park a few summers ago, and uh, he just kept taking off his pants. And then I said, Hudson, you can't, you're not allowed to do that. And he's just like, why? And I was like, that's a great question, man. Um, but I don't know, but you just need to put those on. And uh, the other, one of the other ones I, I, you teach kids is, uh, do you remember Stop, Look, and Listen? Do you know that one? This is how you, what you teach kids when you come to the edge of a sidewalk before a busy road. You say, stop, look, and listen. You stop, don't run into the road. You look both ways. Is there a car that way? Is there a car that way? And listen. Do I hear? Is it coming around the corner? And if you don't see anything, you've stopped, you've looked, you listen, we can walk together. And I love teaching that to Hudson. And I love teaching that to Mary and to, I'll teach that to Millie as she's holding my hand on the road. I remember one time I was explained this to Hudson, and I had this thought that actually this idea of stopping and looking and listening is something that we all need to relearn as adults. There is sort of a busyness and a constant momentum to life that causes us to not see and hear what's going on around us. There's sort of a sense by which we can find ourselves in a rhythm of da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da from one thing to the next to the next, and we can fill our lives with books or newspapers, or social media, or TV, or whatever it might be, music, and we can find ourselves going from one thing to the next thing to the next thing to the next thing, and not quite see what's going on around us. And I think that we're invited and should be challenged to find moments when we're in grocery stores, when we're walking into gas stations, when we're in our workplace, where even though we're there and we're looking, we're listening, I think we need to stop and look and listen. Like where we need to slow down a little bit and look around and ask the question, God, what are you up to around me right now? God, help me see the people. Like we walk past people every day, infinitely precious human beings made in the image of God with a dynamic story who God cares for, has a plan for their life. We walk past them. And I get that. I do this too. It's part of just the reality of there's so many people in every place. And you can even be in this room right now 
And this can just be part of the thing that you do, da-da, da-da, da-da. And I can get, just go into the motions of church, the motions of grocery shopping, the motions of my day-to-day life, and never stop and look and listen. And when we stop and we look and listen, we're looking and we'll see a few things. First, you might begin to see the amount of need there is around us. It can be overwhelming at times. When we slow down and we look and we listen, we might begin to see the need around us. It's interesting that we're in a global missions month right now. But God has brought all of the nations of the world right to our doorstep. We live in such an interesting place in Canada where he has brought the nations to us. And we can find ourselves maybe contributing generously in an offering, celebrating a missionary to a far off place, and miss the fact that we're invited into God's mission today right where we are. And the starting place of joining God in the renewal of all things, because that's what he's doing, right? God is renewing all things. And he's invited us to join him in the transformation of all things. The starting place is stop and look and see and listen and hear the need. And then as you stop and you look and listen, say, God, what are you up to around? You'll begin to see that God is on the move in and around us. And what I really want to talk about this morning is what do we do when we see the need? And what do we do when we discover that God is on the move? Because in the text we're looking at today, one of the things that Mark, the writer, wants us to see is that there's a big distinction between participating in the things of God and spectating the things of God. Like this story that we're about to read, and I hope that you see it as we read it, even in the first pass. I'll read it all the way through in just a moment. The story of these friends who bring their friend to get healing from Jesus. It's a story about spectators, the crowd, and a few participants. What the writer wants you to see in this story is that there's lots of people gathered to see Jesus. But only a few people encounter him personally. And it's not to say that God is like limiting. It's saying that there's an invitation to come in and only a few of them take hold of it. But there's another layer in this story of spectators and participants that we need to see. And it's that God is in the midst of healing people. And while a bunch of people were watching God do the healing, a few people got to join him in it. There's a big difference between spectating and participation. I've watched the World Cup on TV. I've watched the Olympics on TV. There's a big difference between spectating. Spectating can be fun, but man, when you're, when you're on the field, it's a whole other story. Even uh, I was recently visiting a city and there's so much good food. And uh, so I went online beforehand and I looked up all the good food restaurants. I actually did that even here. When me and Colin, Colin's my guest who's traveling with me this weekend, when we landed, I said, let's find the best restaurants. And I started looking, I was waiting on the, I was on the, on a, on the plane as we're kind of pulling up to the gate and I'm looking up all the different restaurants and I'm spectating the food. I must tell you that it was way better tasting the food. We had the best tacos the other night that we went back again the next night. So we've been to the same restaurant twice. So good. Um, but I digress. Should we read the story? Let me pray. God, thank you so much for our time together. Thank you for these minutes we'll have in your word. God, I pray that we'd find our hearts softened. Uh, God, that we'd find our imaginations engaged. And God, even if this is a story that feels familiar, God, I pray that we wouldn't find ourselves in the posture of a spectator, but we'd find ourselves caught up in the story and participating. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you've got your Bible, flip to Mark chapter 2, and I'll read from verses 1 all the way through to 12, 
And I think they have it there on the screen for you as well. It says this. It says, a few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there's no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. So the scene is, is a, a picture of a, a house, probably a small house, but so full, so full that people can't even get in to see Jesus. So it says, verse 4, since they could not get him to Jesus, or verse 3 says, some men came bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And that's a very important question. Who can forgive sins? Verse 8. Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. I love this. Verse 12. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we've never seen anything like this before. Do you see the spectators? Do you see the participants? Do you see the crowd? The crowd is so fascinating, isn't it? I always wonder about this crowd, because they bring this friend in, the place is packed, and this guy who's paralyzed, they're trying to get him to Jesus. And they have to climb on the roof, but it always makes me ask, like, why didn't people make a path for him? Have you ever wondered that before in this story? Like, it's not the first thing I noticed. It wasn't the second thing I noticed, but coming back to this text again and again, and it makes me think about actually us in church sometimes, or at least my own life, that I can be so busy watching people talk about Jesus or people teach about Jesus, and the, the very thing he's asking us to do, to care for the broken, I can miss it right in front of me. And I find myself convicted by the thought of, am I a consumer of Christian ideas or am I joining God in the great invitation to see the renewal of all things? Here's what I want to do. I just want to kind of almost go verse by verse. Just pick out a few verses. We won't be able to hit everyone in our time together. But we'll just start by the top. And I want to unpack the narrative a little bit. I want us to see what's going on. So let's go straight to the top. Verse 1, it says this. It says, a few days later when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. And it goes on to explain that people gathered in such large number that there was no room left. And so what is going on is that Jesus had been in Capernaum before. If you've got your Bibles, you could flip over to Mark chapter 1. You'd see that he had been in Capernaum before. And what did he do when he was there last time? What does Jesus do where he's anywhere? He proclaims the good news of the kingdom of God. He heals all kinds of sicknesses, disease, and he casts out demons. So Jesus enters Capernaum. And he begins to do the kingdom ministry that he came to do. Announce the good news of the kingdom. What's the good news of the kingdom? God is for you, not against you. You can know God. The kingdom of God, the goodness of God, the peace and shalom of God is not some far off place. It is more at hand than you could ever know. And it's not just for a select few, but you're invited in. So he's proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. And then he's demonstrating the power of the kingdom with healing. 
And so what happens is he leaves Capernaum and he finds himself coming back. And so people begin to gossip around Capernaum about Jesus, about the things that he did last time he was there. And so when they discover that he's in town, they begin to go, oh, Jesus, the rabbi Jesus is back in town. Have you heard that Jesus is back? Now, this is before Instagram. This is before Twitter. This is before cell phones. This is just word of mouth, good old-fashioned gossip. And the gossip is like this. Like, imagine you. If your son left the house one day, and maybe your son's sick. Maybe he's got some sort of pain in his body, or he walks with a limp. And he comes home, and he's healed. And you say, son, what happens? And he goes, all I know is I met this guy, Jesus, and he healed me. The next day, you better believe that you're telling your friends. You're not going to believe what happened to my son. He was healed. So gossip began to spread around Capernaum. Now, not all of the gossip was good gossip. The religious leaders were scandalized by the message of Jesus, the inclusivity of the message, the, the nature of the message. You see, they were the brokers of who could go in and out of the kingdom of God. And here comes a man who claims to be God saying, you're all invited. You're all invited in. And so all, whether it was the Pharisees or the religious teachers wanting to hear more or it was curious hearts that her ears were percolated, the gossip began to spread. And so people gathered. They respond. And it makes me ask this question. What is the gossip about Jesus in Ellerslie? What is the gossip about Jesus in the Edmonton area? And what is your contribution What is our contribution to the gossip about Jesus? If you flick on the news, there is a strong narrative that's being woven about followers of Jesus that doesn't reflect Jesus well. If you watch movies and you consume media, there is a narrative about Jesus that's being painted. I find myself so often saying, I wish people could know about the real Jesus. I wish they could know the real story about Jesus. Because if you could know the real Jesus, it would grip your imagination. It would captivate your heart. Like in this moment where power is being confronted. In the midst of a moment where people are being outed for all sorts of scandal. People in power again and again and again. I wish they would know about the Jesus who had infinite power but never used it for his own gain. Who never manipulated or took advantage. I wish they knew about Jesus. And so for us as followers of Jesus, we're invited to have the good news, the stories of Jesus on our lips. To find ourselves in environments that aren't so insulated. There's people who don't even go to this church or aren't followers of Jesus. You see, it's so tempting to insulate our lives, isn't it? It just happens so naturally. It's not even something that we necessarily intend to do, but we can find ourselves so insulated that even if we were to tell the stories of how God's been good in our life, how God's been faithful in our life, It would find itself on people who already know. And I think that sometimes the church in Canada has found itself in silos. And even if we're telling the stories of the good things God's been doing, perhaps it's possible that the people that need to hear it the most aren't hearing. So in Capernaum, all these people heard and they gathered. And you know, can I just say one more thing about the gossip of Jesus that could be on our lips? The stories of how God has changed your life, they range from the miraculous to the mundane. And I think that sometimes we, put a, we kind of say only the miraculous stories are worth sharing. The stories of radical healing or radical conversion. And I love those stories. Men and women from prison finding a second chance in Jesus. 
People being healed radically, like my friend Crystal, who is healed of cancer, radical. I love those stories. But my brother who's fighting cancer, his testimony isn't God's taken away the cancer. His testimony is, I have peace in the midst of the pain. And that is the kind of gossip that can be on your lips. From the miraculous to the mundane. Let it come out of your lips. And then we see something happen. They go to go and find out more about Jesus. And the question I'm wondering with, wrestling with, and I know is at the heart of this church, is this, this church longs, Ellerslie Baptist longs, that there can be places, pockets, where we can invite people who maybe they're not followers of Jesus. Maybe you're here, you're not a follower of Jesus, but you've been invited to explore Jesus. If you hear the stories or you have questions, where do you go? And I know for you, whether it's the Sunday morning service or the Alpha Gathering that happens on Sundays, or it's, uh, uh, I know even next weekend I heard about the coffee house you're hosting, that there'd be environments that you can invite people into to explore and ask questions, to find out more. That's what we see happening in the story. They heard about what Jesus had done, and they wanted to see for themselves. And the interesting thing is, and I love Alpha, and I think you should invite people to Alpha. And I love church. I think you should invite people to church. But the best place that you can invite somebody into is your own life. To your home. That's where they come and see Jesus at work in your life. Opening up our lives and becoming an invitational people. Inviting people, come along with us. Come into our home and have a meal at our table. Come along with our family as we do this activity. Come and join me at church. Come and join me at Alpha. The gossip has to be followed by an invitation to come and see. And that's what we see here. Jesus inviting them to come and see, to find out more. Okay, let's move on. So there's this incredible scene. And uh, the, these friends, and maybe I'll talk more about the friends later because these friends, they fascinate me. But we realize they vandalized the house, right? You all caught that? Could you imagine for a second if this was your house? Be very offended. Please don't rip a hole in my roof. That's hard to fix. It doesn't just, especially in this climate right now. It's just not ideal. They rip a hole in their roof and they lower their friend to Jesus on a mat. And Jesus' response, Jesus' response to him is, Son, your sins are forgiven. Did that strike anybody as peculiar? Like it's interesting, right? That Jesus says, Son, your sins are forgiven. Because the, the need that this man had was a paralysis of his body, right? And it was an obvious need. He's being lowered on a mat in this really dramatic way. And we know that Jesus sees the need because at the end of the narrative, he says, pick up your mat and walk. So it's not that Jesus is saying, I don't see your need. And it's not that he's saying, I don't care about your need. It's as if Jesus is saying, there's a deeper need. And I wonder for the boys who lowered their friend down on a mat what they thought in that moment. Like, what's Jesus going on about? Son, your sins are forgiven. But what Jesus is exposing is that there's a deeper need. See, this is the thing with Jesus. He's never okay with shallow. And he's not interested in a quick fix. He always goes beneath the surface. In this way, he's like a great ER doctor. In the midst of a car accident, you're rushed to the ER room. You might have all sorts of pain in your body, broken arm, hurt leg, but the ER doctor is going to ascertain what the most life-threatening disease is, or the, li the most life-threatening injury is, and is going to deal with that with the most acute focus. And that's what Jesus is doing, like a great ER doctor. He says, I see the paralysis of your body, but there's a deeper need. Now, here's what Jesus is not saying. Jesus is not saying that it's your, the reason why you have a physical paralysis is because of your sin. 
That's not what's going on here. In John chapter 9, there's a man who's blind. And the disciples ask, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus' response is, neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. So Jesus is not saying, actually, the reason why there's a physical issue is because of a sin issue. That's not what's going on here. Jesus is saying there's a much more significant issue. There is this paralysis of the soul. And this guy might not even know that he has it. He might not even know, but Jesus is saying there is a sickness that is more significant than the paralysis of your body. It's a soul paralysis, and I want to deal with that. And when he declares over him, son, your sins are forgiven, he's getting at the core need of every human heart, whether you know it or not. We were hosting an alpha at our church with high school students. Actually, high school students were running them in their high schools. And then there's a part of alpha called the alpha weekend or the alpha day away where there's talks really focused on the person and work of the Holy Spirit. And so we hosted a Saturday at our church for all these different students from different schools. And so there was a student there named Mark who I'd never met before. And he was from Brookswood Secondary School in Langley, BC. And he's young, I think he was in grade nine, maybe grade 10, and he'd never been to church before. But he was invited to Alpha by a friend from school. And Mark is a professed atheist. He says, my parents are atheists, And I decided, after doing some research, that I too was an atheist. And he said, but, so I said, how did you end up on Alpha? And he goes, well, some friends were running Alpha, and they invited me to come, and I had nothing else to do, so I went. Let's just pause there for a second. Some people are just an invitation away. They're just an invitation away. To a meal at your house. To a visit on a Saturday to come along to Alpha. Anyways, I said, I had nothing else to do, so I went. And he says, throughout the first couple weeks, my mind began to go as I heard about Jesus and had these conversations. And then when somebody prayed for him on the Alpha weekend, he said, it's like something came alive in his heart. And he said this, he says, it's like God filled a void in my heart that I didn't even know that I had until after he filled it. He'd never been in church. He's not quoting anyone else. He's like, this is this young boy who's like trying to explain what he just experienced. He says, it was like there was a void in my heart that was filled that I didn't even know that I had until after it was filled. You see, sometimes even for this guy, he might have not even known that Jesus wanted to do something way better in his life. For this guy with a paralysis of his body, he probably wondered, you know, like, can we get to the point? But he had no idea that he was going to get way more than he bargained for that day. Now, I want to be sensitive as I say this because I wonder for this man who is paralyzed, if he had this belief that if he could just be healed, everything in his life would be better. And the reason why I wonder this is because it's human nature for you, for me, for anyone to fixate on things and give them almost godlike power. We do this with money all the time, or career. Man, if I could just make this much money, if I could just have this much in my retirement fund, if I could just have this type of job, then I'll be okay. 
You can get, I, I don't need anything else, but if I could just have this, and the human nature, we do it with relationships. If I could just get this guy or this girl, if I could just have kids that love me and love God, if I could just, and, and we can go, if I just have this one thing, then everything will be okay. And for those of you who've lived long enough, you've seen that you've got the thing that your heart longed for and it didn't satisfy, did it? It might have made an impact, but you found your heart still wanting. Whether you're 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 or 60 or 70 or 80, you've experienced yourself fixating on something, getting that very thing, and then your heart wandering to something else. And I just wonder for this young man if he thought, man, if I could just be healed. I don't need money. I don't need fame. If I could just walk. But the message of Christianity is that what your heart really longs for, what your heart is really craving, the only thing that will really satisfy is a relationship with your heavenly father. And in this room, not just out there, in this room, myself and you, we find ourselves forgetting the thing that our heart longs for. And we can find ourselves living for so many different things. And we come to Jesus and it's as if he would say, yeah, I see that need, I hear that prayer, but I want your heart. I'm not okay with this search. I see that. I'm, we'll talk about, we'll get, I see that. I want to, but there's a deeper need. And in our city, in our city, you know, the posture of the church to the culture around us is not to say, oh man, the culture is going wayward. Oh, the culture is falling apart. The, the, the expression we see in the world around us, the longing, the expression, it's their heart longing for God, but finding it in misplaced desires. You know, Jesus' teaching about salt and light, about salt, it's really interesting because salt is this preserving agent. And so they would pack fish with salt to preserve it from going rotten. And if um, you found some fish that had gone rotten, would you blame the fish? No, you'd say, where was the salt? Or if you're in a dark room, would you blame the darkness? No, you'd say, where's the light? And as we see moral decay and a society around us crumble, we don't say, what's wrong with the culture? We say, where's the church? You're the salt of the world. We are the light of the world a preserving agent. So it goes with the church, it goes with the city. And so we don't turn and say, oh man, look at this city falling apart. We look inward and we say, God, renew our hearts. Move us from spectators to participants. Help us see the deeper need in me and around us that we'd be people who proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. This deeper need. Jesus is going after a deeper need. He says there's a deeper need. I remember one of, our, one of the stories that came in about Alpha early on when we first launched the youth series. There's a, uh, a church in Richmond and uh, Richmond Chinese Anglican Church. And they were running Alpha for about 20 of their high school students. And one of the talks on Alpha is about healing. And so after the talk on healing, again, we're talking about participants and spectators. There's an invitation. Why don't you talk about, why don't you pray about what we were just talking about? Pray for one another to be healed. You see, I love sermons about healing. I love them. I love sermons about evangelism. 
What I struggle to do is do it. And like, you know, if somebody's like, okay, now we're actually going to go and pray for people. I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. That's not how we do it. We just talk about these things. You know what I mean? We don't. But what, so they, these students, they're just, they, were, they, weren't, they, weren't, they weren't happy with just being spectators. They wanted to be participants. They actually began to pray for one another. And there was a girl um, in one of the small groups who had um, scars up and down her arm from self-injury, which is a very, very, very common issue right now. Um, way higher than we think. But there's so many scars up and down her arm from self-injury. And self-injury is a, a way for this girl to escape from her pain temporarily by this release of physical pain. So she had scars up and down her arms, and they prayed for her for healing. And in front of all these students, the scars on her arm disappeared. Incredible. They weren't okay with just being spectators. They wanted to participate. But what I love about this story and what I know about God is God is even more interested in healing the scars on her heart that would have caused her to harm in the first place. You see, when we pray for people to be healed of scars in their arms, they're not always healed, and I don't know why. But I know that the forever promise of God is that when we come to him in our broken heart, our fractured heart, our sin-fractured heart, Jesus comes and he breaks the curse of sin. He tears down the wall that divides us and reconciles our heart to God. That is what he does. And that's what's going on in this story. When he declares over him, son, your sins are forgiven. He's saying all those things that once had the power to separate you from me no longer stand between us. And the religious leaders, they very appropriately respond. Who can forgive sins but God alone, they say. I was in um, a gift shop uh, in London because I was staying at a friend's house for, when I was there for work and I went to this gift shop to try to find something that I could give as a gift to them for hosting me. So I was asking the guy to help me pick out something to give, what would be helpful, what would be nice and and he goes, what do you do? And I just said, well, I'm here for work. What do you do? I said, I work with churches. And he goes, do you know that Jesus never claimed to be God? I said, that's interesting. And I'm like, this is amazing. He's opened up this conversation. And in this moment, and this is a common objection, Jesus never claimed to be God. I think it's very, very clear through the rhythms of Scripture that Jesus consistently put himself in the place of God. And this is one of those examples. This is one of those examples where Jesus is fundamentally putting himself in the same place as God because to, to claim the authority to forgive sins was tantamount to claiming to be God. That's why the religious leaders respond the way they did. They say, who can forgive sins but God alone? Exactly. One of the primary purposes of this text is Mark wants us to see chapter two. We're at the beginning. This is part of the thesis statement of the book of Mark. Jesus is more than a man. He's healing. He's casting out demons. He's teaching with authority. He is God in the flesh. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Exactly. Exactly. Who can forgive sins but God alone? In this moment, Jesus is starting a counter-temple movement. He's disarming the authority structures. You see, to get the forgiveness of sins, there would be ritual and regulations, mediators, sacrifices. Jesus says, I'm the final sacrifice. I'm the only mediator. The way to God is through me. And then he presents the message of God, this bold announcement. The gospel, sometimes it feels complicated, sometimes it feels overwhelming, but at its core, it's an announcement of good news. He declares over him, your sins are forgiven, which confronts our religious bent. Because we have a bent towards earning 
forgiveness from God. We can bend towards a framework of forgiveness that says the way in which I earn right standing with God is by my good works. But before this young man did a thing, before he changed his behavior, before he, you know, worshiped Jesus, before any of these things, Jesus declares over him, your sins are forgiven. And that's the gospel. You don't earn your way to God. You don't earn your way to fullness of life in Jesus. You don't have to satisfy your debt. He paid your debt. And he announces to you and to me, your sins are forgiven. Son, daughter, your sins are forgiven. And I know that as we're talking about missions, this is about us telling others. But could you hear this for yourself today? You've been a follower of Jesus for a long time. But like me, you can get yourself wrapped up in guilt for not doing enough. You're so aware potentially of your sin and so it comes out in all sorts of religious judgmentalism or bitterness or hurt. But we must hear afresh, son, daughter, your sins are forgiven. He paid your debt. You're welcomed in. And that young man leaves that place believing one of two things. Either he leaves that place believing that Jesus was not God and he didn't have the authority to forgive sins. And so he leaves that place as if satisfying his sin debt is still on his shoulders. Or he leaves that room believing that that was God and what he said was true. And he finds freedom. He walks out that place holding his mat. Sins forgiven. I'm mesmerized by the friends in this story. It's where I always come back to. I'm just so gripped by their passion. I think every one of us needs a friend that would vandalize for us. Do you, have, do you know that friend? Are you that friend for someone else? Someone that you know, and the worst comes to worst, I know who I could call. They would rip down a roof for me if I needed to. They're so passionate. We have to get our friend to Jesus. It was just a hunch. They didn't even know what would happen. They're, we've got to get our friend to Jesus. They heard the gossip. We've got to get our friend to Jesus. I'm just so struck by their passion. I'm struck by their recklessness. If this is what they're willing to do for their friend to be physically healed, what would they be prepared to do if they understood fully the spiritual need that their friend had and Jesus' willingness to heal his soul? I love their recklessness. Lord, make me reckless to see people come to know you. You would do this for your friend, your son, your daughter, your closest friend. You'd bust down a wall if they could be healed. Lord, give us hearts for our neighbors like that. And you know what I love about this? They didn't let fear of man get in the way or embarrassment. I have found that I am so often motivated or demotivated by my fear of what other people think. In this story, it seems like they're so caught up in their desire that their friend would come to know Jesus, that they would do anything. I also love that they weren't paralyzed by the fear that they had to do it all themselves. Their conviction was simple. What if we get our friend in front of Jesus? Like, we don't know what's gonna happen. We don't know how to heal our friend. 
We don't know how to close this whole deal. All we know is that we can do what we can do to try to get our friend in proximity with Jesus. They're like, if we can just get him in the proximity of the building, if we can get him as close as possible, who knows what Jesus would do? You know what I also love about this story? I imagine these guys would have talked about that day for a long time. You know? Imagine like a year later, they're around the fire with their buddy who now walks. And they're like, oh boys, you remember last year? Jesus was in town. You didn't want to go through the roof, but I said we should. We were tempted to stop, but we didn't. And then we put him down there, and Jesus is like, boom, your sins are forgiven. We're like, what? They would have talked about that story. I want to sit around the fire with you guys next year at the end of our life. And say, look at all the things that God let us be part of. I want to make it my ambition to spend my days getting caught up in the things of God. Most days, I don't live that way. I'm distracted by the things of this world. But in moments of clarity that the word of God and corporate gatherings like this can give us, why don't we renew in our hearts that I want to spend my days trying to get people in proximity with God and see what he might do. Five years from now, 10 years from now, 20 years, we're not going to look back and say, remember all that money we made? Remember that house that we remodeled? Remember that car we drove? No, we'll be telling the stories. Remember when Jesus healed our friend. Remember when our son became a Christian. Remember when our whole neighbor's family's life was changed because they met Jesus. Those will be the stories we'll remember. That will be the stuff we'll celebrate. And the posture won't be pride or arrogance. It won't be, man, look what I did. It's like, man, look what Jesus let us be part of. This whole story grips my imagination because all they did was try to get their friend to Jesus and he did the heavy lifting. And Jesus makes such a difference in people's lives. As we talk today about moving from spectator, from crowd and spectator to participant. I have to first ask maybe if there's somebody here and you're not a follower of Jesus. Like you don't know him personally. And you say, I've, I've been in part of the crowd. I've heard the stories, but you know what? My heart is moved and I want to know him personally. Today, I would invite you to believe the good news that your sins are forgiven. Put your faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. That through him, you can be reconciled to God. And invite him to come and live in your life. Before we leave, we can pray together. But even now in your heart, you can respond by saying, Jesus, I put my trust in you for the forgiveness of sins. He would declare over you this morning, you don't have to earn your way to God. Your sins are forgiven. Put your faith in him for the forgiveness of sins. Move this morning from the crowd to participate. But I also must speak to those of us potentially most of us. You might say, I'm a follower of Jesus, but like me, you find yourself in the crowd when it comes to the ministry of Jesus. And can I just say very clearly, 
you can go from church to church like I do and preach and still find myself in the crowd not joining him in the transformation. Because this is one thing. I love doing this. This is my biggest joy, talking about the Bible with people like you. When I go home, I have neighbors and friends that God's put me in strategic places for strategic purpose. And I can be so busy doing church things that I don't even stop to look to listen to what he's doing on my own street, in my own family, in my favorite coffee shop and gas station. But when we have moments like we have today to stop and to look and to listen, our response should be, God, I want to join you. I want to join you. And I want to be as practical as possible. How do we join God? There's lots that could be said, so this isn't a comprehensive list, but I want to give you the best starting places. First is we begin to pray. To find people in our lives that God's put in our proximity and to do in prayer what we want to have happen in real life. In prayer, we grab hold of somebody far from God. This is intercession. And we bring them before the Father and we say, see my friend who doesn't know you. Would you have mercy on them? I invite you to pray for your neighbors, pray for your friends, pray for your family members every day that don't know Jesus. And if even now as we talk about this, if no names come to mind, I would encourage you to consider, God, put names in my mind. Help me see some people that I've missed and just begin to pray. Every one of us can do that. Just begin to pray every day. God, I want to put this person in front of you. And God, if you want to use me, I'm open. But God, I want to put them in front of you, work in their heart. We approximate them before God in prayer. Another practical step we do is we invite I know it's the heart of this church to create a culture of invitation. An invitation sometimes means inviting someone to something like Alpha or a coffee house or to church. But it might be inviting them into your home, inviting them into a conversation. Invitation is powerful. I used to feel pressure. I have to get people to church. I have to get people to my house. I have to get people. That's not the task. We can't control people. That's too much pressure. The only thing that we need to do is be faithful in the invitation to open up our lives and invite. God can handle the rest. We invite them into a conversation. We love them with our life. We pray for them. Invite them in. I heard one pastor say this, invite six, bring one. He was promoting Alpha or something like that. Invite six and bring one. I love that because the heart of it just acknowledges like, hey, listen, not everyone you invite is going to come the first time. But I think about my friend Alana or I think about my friend Delaney, different people that I know who were invited before, might have said no the first time, invited again, said yes the second time. I know somebody took them three, four, five times invited to Alpha until they finally said yes. And then they gave their life to Jesus on their Alpha course. Or my friend Alana, who was waiting for an invitation. Somebody was praying. God put her name on their hearts. They didn't even have her phone number, so they asked around for her phone number, got a hold of her, and said, Alana, this sounds funny, but I was praying about who to invite to Alpha, and your name came to mind. And she says, I was waiting for someone to invite me. Invitation. Prayer. An invitation. Let me pray. God, thank you so much that you're on the move around us. Thank you so much that just as you did in the first century, you're here today in the Edmonton area, in Alberta, and in Canada, you're on the move. God, we thank you for the work you're doing around the world through missions. And God, we long to participate globally, yes, but here in our own city. And so God, I pray that we have eyes to see, to see what it is that you're up to around us. And God, you'd give us the courage to participate. 
to move from spectator to participant. And God, I pray that our hearts and our minds would be gripped for our neighbors and our friends like the guys we met in this story. Reckless, courageous, stop at nothing. God, do that in my heart and the hearts of my friends this morning. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. Thank you, Jason. God's doing those kinds of things right now, even in the next half hour as we run Alpha Sunday brunch at Ellerslie. Who doesn't want to come to brunch? (laughs) It's great. We're having some great conversations in our Alpha program, even uh, at 11 o'clock these Sundays. So uh, I wrote down here for myself, help me to see... No, I confess that 